Chapter Five, On the Road. The few hours I'd spent back at the FEMA camp waiting for the bus gave me an opportunity to record my name with a processing worker, a lost-looking woman with a name badge reading Ginny Swan. In another life, Ginny Swan might have been the sweetest, most generous person in the world. She looked the part of a mom, though I can't really explain why I thought that. Here, though, she looked like a ghost. Ginny processed new arrivals to the camp and kept an eye on every face that entered the processing tent. Distractedly, she asked me for identification about where I had been heading, who might be looking for me, and any message I had for them in case they came through. Ginny's eyes were red, and she typed my information into a laptop. There was a moment when our conversation stopped abruptly, and she stood up in her chair with a look of hope and excitement, only to melt back down into her seat, looking like someone else got the award for best processing clerk. I think it might have been that moment when I saw the real Ginny emerge from that shell that I pegged her as a bright, bubbly human being. But that person disappeared like the soul from a corpse by the time she looked back at me. She apologized, of course, and resumed the interview. I was pretty sure I knew the answer, but I had to ask. What are you looking for? I could tell she didn't want to, but answered softly. My husband and son. I last saw them back in Mansfield. I'm told anyone they find on Interstate 80 gets processed here, so I volunteered to stay and help them work in case they showed up. I asked how long she'd been there, and she had to think. The best she could come up with was days, I think. And then she returned to processing my information so the next poor soul could tell her his life story. In the end, Jenny handed me a voucher for services in the camp while I waited for the bus. I wanted to tell Jenny I'd keep an eye out for her family, but I think, even at that point, I knew it would just be a comforting lie. On the hastily written and typo-riddled document, FEMA promised to pass the info I gave Jenny along, but didn't tell me where or to whom. It said... Watch for the buses as they arrive and gather promptly at the door of bus number. Ginny scribbled a number in the blank space. Buses will not be announced and will only remain at the center for ten minutes. It continued with a lot of scolding and consequences for missing a bus. Its coupons were good for a ration of water, a couple of granola bars, a change of clothes, shower, and access to a power strip to recharge my gadgets— I think I was most grateful for the power-up. I keep everything straight and organized in my school notebook, so I was glad to board the bus with a fully charged gadget. While catching up on my journal on the road, I kept checking the little spinning network icon in the bottom right corner of the screen, hoping it would change to a green checkmark. If it did, I would upload my files and a simple message to my mom's email. I'm alive, headed to relocation site 2210. I did not add, 
wherever the hell that is. Meanwhile, my cell phone had like a dozen or so texts cycling through the infinite resend attempts with the same message. I hit everyone in my contact list hoping maybe one of them still had service. All that seemed to do was bleed the battery, but I had to try. Every so often, someone would detect a weak wireless network signal and send a ripple of hope through the crowd. This happened at the processing center and on the buses. We heard claims that some email and texts were squeaking through before the connection winked out. None of those people could confirm anything they sent made it where it was going. To keep trying might seem pointless, but committing my phone to that one task on a never-ending cycle made part of my brain feel like it was doing something about the situation. It freed that part of my mind to focus on my more immediate problems. As I mentioned in my previous log entry, a trio of buses arrived looking like they were pulled from the Mad Max Road Warrior universe. But either that or they were pimped out by hillbillies with lots of scrap metal and a welding kit. Each bus was grotesquely armored with bars or plates over the windows and razor wire twisting through metal hoops welded to the skin at about adult neck level. The lead bus looked like it was masquerading as a steam engine with a turret up top at the front and a rusty-looking metal scoop over the nose. It took me a second to realize the turret was an oil drum welded to the roof. The lead bus had my number spray-painted on its side. I lined up to board with a dozen other people. There were already a lot of people on the bus, and they all looked dead on the inside. An odd collection of soldiers from every service were on hand to help people load up. A majority of them were Army Airborne, with patches designating them as members of the 82nd. That's where I met Sergeant Charlie Rock and his sad, sunken eyes. As soldiers took positions inside and on top of the buses, I turned on my freshly charged gadgets— checked the delivery status of the text messages on my phone, and noted that one had sent successfully to my aunt in Elwood City. Nothing back, though, and the phone showed no signal. Still armed with that hope, I was happy to let the battery bleed down again. I was sure we'd stop somewhere for the night, somewhere with a power strip. My trusty netbook, however, was different. I needed it on the journey to keep sane and distract myself. As the afternoon wore on and the sun dropped below the mountains ahead of us, I chronicled my conversation with Sergeant Rock and tried not to think about the things he'd seen. I tried not to think about the things everyone else on the bus must have seen. So I typed, and I kept checking the wireless tracker. When the green battery icon turned to yellow, I shut down and closed up. I needed to treat it like a canteen. With devices going dark all over the bus for lack of power, I needed to conserve power as much as the waters the soldiers had given me at the loading site. The bus convoy moved along at about 30 miles an hour. Pretty aggressive driving by night vision on roads littered with wrecked vehicles. Across the aisle, my favorite sergeant kept silent watch on the road, muttering into his headset every so often, probably to the driver 
front. I wondered how he kept focus when everything was falling apart. This wasn't a distant war with a safe home front to reflect on in the downtime. The war was everywhere. My mind lingered on this for a little while. Despite feeling like I would never sleep again, the sergeant's tired face was the last thing I remember seeing before a hard, dreamless sleep took me over. Sometime later, it felt like an instant but could have been as much as an hour. The bus had to make a quick stop. The whine of brakes shook me awake and my momentum carried me into the back of the seat in front of me. Something told me to stay low and tune into the crowd around me. I looked toward my Sergeant Rock, but he was gone. I listened for a moment. People were whispering. The voices I could make out were talking about people moving around outside the bus in the darkness. Without night vision or streetlights, they were going off glimpses of shapes in the moonlight. I wasn't concerned right away that there were monsters outside the bus, but whatever it was had a bunch of soldiers on guard and on edge. I was more concerned that these passengers were going to do something really stupid while cramped together inside a locked metal tube. From my perspective, the moonlight turned a group of human beings into anonymous shadows moving uneasily in their seats. They were scared, and either looking intently out the windows of the bus, or hiding from whatever the others were looking at outside. Above me, I heard a voice shout, 30 seconds to gap band! 30 seconds confirmed! Hold fire until the ball drops! There was more, but that's all I remember. The sound drew my eyes to the open emergency top exit hatch that suggested my sergeant was up there now, too. The driver, far up at the front in his seat, glowed in this weird combination of red and green from the light cast off the dashboard and his monochrome laptop display. Over the hushed voices, I could hear the pounding of fists on metal. And they were slapping against the side of the bus as well. Just over the idling engine and muffled chatter, I could hear a desperate aggressive chorus of snarls and moans, hissing and gargles, coming from all around me, outside the bus. Suddenly, the bus shook like it hit a speed bump a little too fast, and the collective gasp that rose from the passengers seemed to excite the things outside. A hush followed, and allowed us all to hear more of what was happening outside. Soon, someone in the shadows said, Plainly and clearly. Holy God. It's a herd. A herd is a group of eaters that, for whatever reason, have decided to move together across open territory in search of food. They may all follow the same scent after groups of refugees, or maybe they just prefer the company. Sometimes a herd is a dozen, but I've seen them number in the thousands. 
A herd moves in unison, as the name suggests, but they don't act with any rhythm or organization. So we sat in the dark as dozens of soft fists and bodies slammed against the outside of the bus. In the chaos of the shifting herd, one side took a hit and the bus rocked hard. One of the soldiers above me fell hard onto the roof. Someone yelled to hold fire. Hold fire? What the hell? The only answer came from above me. Gap band incoming. Hold position. Brace all points. Brace. Around me, passengers asked the same questions in hushed voices. Why had we stopped? Why wasn't the driver pushing through the herd? Were there too many to get through? Was the road blocked by debris? Were we stuck? Why weren't the men up top firing their precious explosive hollow point rounds? Why weren't they doing anything? Our answer screamed across the sky, lighting up the world around us with a rocket trail that had the men and boys up top screaming and cheering like it was an encore at a Skinnerd concert. Someone up top shouted, Gap band confirmed, target engaged. The light shifted quickly, but as much as the sound excited the soldiers, the light caused a stir of fear inside the bus. Not the light itself, of course, but what they could see around the bus, extending out into the woods on both sides and up the road in a mob of hundreds of walking corpses. Even the eaters seemed drawn to the light and sound as it disappeared over the hill. The pounding and the moaning died down for a moment, and then had just started up again when something burned off the darkness for an instant, brighter and longer than lightning, followed by an earthquake rolling backwards along the road. The passengers in my bus screamed. I screamed. I could hear screaming from the bus behind us. They dropped a bomb, all right. After the flash died and my eyes recovered, a pillar of fire rose gracefully over the hilltop and tree-lined on either side. It was bright enough to see reflected on the metal of the roof hatch and outside bars and plates. The rumble that finally arrived seconds later rolled over us and through us, longer than any thunder I'd ever heard, longer than a minute, including the faint echo off the rolling Appalachians to the east. The wind picked up blowing in from the direction of the explosion. Someone asked, Did we just nuke them? This led to someone else asking if we were close enough to get, quote, radiation sick, but the driver tried to address this quickly and clearly. It was a big bomb, he shouted, one of the biggest they had, launched from a command center 40 miles east to a painted target ahead on the road. This put some at ease, but others were quick to call it a lie. Before the debate could continue, the eaters outside resumed their pounding and shaking. Clearly, they were unshocked and unawed. Over this came the sound of brakes hissing and the soft growl of a diesel engine behind us. The next bus in the convoy pulled forward to close the gap between us, thumping eaters out of the way. Our driver got on his headset quickly with a look you find in people who liked things done precisely as planned seeing something not going that way. I remember thinking the bus was coming up on us pretty fast. The squeal of brakes came a little later than I expected as well, and 
Boom.